You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Here are some highlights from this week's program. One of the important things about medicine, I've always felt, is good communication. And communicating not only with your patients, but also with other practitioners and also the public. And communication is central to the fundamental meaning of doctor, which is a Latin word meaning teacher. I think that that has been the principle by which I've lived and practiced, and I've felt very gratified to be able to do that here. Lifestyle modification remains the mainstay of therapy for cholesterol treatment, and that means smoking cessation, exercise, achievement of your ideal body weight, and a healthy diet. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Dream Kitchen Studios, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 140, Hearts in Maine, airing for the first time on Sunday, May 18th, 2014. Heart disease is the leading cause of death among American adults. Thus, it generates much discussion in the fields of medicine and public health. Today, we speak with two physicians who have had many years of experience in cardiology, yet continue to understand heart health in innovative ways. Join our conversations with Dr. Peter Shaw and Dr. Dervila McCann and learn how our doctors are using their heads to gain important insights into main hearts. Thank you for joining us. Any good doctor will tell you that the foundation of their own medical career is having good teachers, good physician teachers, good other healthcare provider teachers. And among my really um, basic foundational great teachers is Dr. Peter Shaw, who actually is in the studio with us today. Dr. Peter Shaw is a cardiologist in Portland at Martins Point Healthcare. He's been practicing medicine for 36 years and has been affiliated with Maine Medical Center and Mercy Hospital throughout his career in Portland. There's really so much more behind that short bio, but I just wanted to thank you for taking time out of your patient schedule and coming in and talking to us today. Well, thanks for asking me. Dr. Shaw, it's really interesting for um, me to have you here because it's not just uh, me that you have a relationship with. You've known my father as Dr. Charlie Belisle. You've been around sort of the same length of time practicing medicine in the Portland area. Yeah, uh, I have. Uh, When I came here, uh, there were just a few of us cardiologists, and uh, several of us were covering each other at night, and the large groups ultimately becoming uh, the uh, hospital-owned practice uh, evolved over many years. Um, One of the great things about this city uh, is uh, the resources that it has, and uh, among those uh, uh, were the opportunities to practice and teach at two very great hospitals, uh, and uh, both of which had 
training programs that allowed me to do uh, what I really have always felt my mission was, and that is to take care of people and to pass on what I know to others. Um, one of the uh, important things about medicine I've always felt is uh, uh, good communication and uh, communicating not only with your patients but also with other practitioners and also the public and uh, uh, communication is central to the fundamental meaning of doctor which is a Latin word meaning teacher. So. Um, I think that uh, that has been the principle by which I've lived and practiced, and uh, I've uh, felt uh, very uh, gratified to be able to do that here. When I was starting my medical training, we were um, really right in the age of technology, where it was about we were taught how to order tests, we were taught how to make diagnoses based on testing. I know as a cardiologist, you use tests yourself. Um, but one of the things that I remember quite vividly was the time spent with you at the bedside of patients using one simple piece of equipment, and that was the stethoscope. And I remember it so clearly that you would, first of all, it would be important that the um, doctor-patient relationship was very strong, and it was never assumed that that this was okay, you know, we're just going to stick our stethoscope on you. There was always that that the sense that um, it was important to bring the patient as, in as a teacher as well. But then the, the, learning, the learning of murmurs, the learning of um, abnormal pulse presentations, the physical diagnosis stuff, which is something that I think gets lost in today's medicine, um, that was so strong in your teaching. Is that something that you still count on, rely on yourself? Well, I not only count on it, I teach it. Uh, we uh, uh, have... Um at the uh, Maine Medical Center, a uh, beautiful facility uh, for teaching that uh, is called the Simulation Center. It's sponsored by uh, Hannaford, and it's uh, a uh, state-of-the-art uh, uh, structure that uh, allows uh, experience in the operating room in, uh, at the bedside and uh, uh, doing uh, instrumentation like um, endoscopy. Um, so uh, the uh, bedside teaching, which is, uh, I think, irreplaceable, has been greatly augmented by having idealized mechanical subjects that we can uh, really demonstrate very clearly what a particular feeling or sound or observation is. Uh, and then that can be taken by the interns and residents who are learning it uh, to uh, the bedside where they're um, free to uh, make uh, observations on live patients. Uh, one of the things that uh, we try to do uh, is get them to understand that they're not just listening at a patient's heart, but they're listening for particular findings that will give them clues as to what diagnoses to then explore. You have a background in public health. You spent two years at the Centers for Disease Control. And um, not everybody would understand the link between cardiology and internal medicine and public health. It's pretty clear to you and I, but tell us what it was about public health that caused you to go in that direction first. Um, my first introduction to uh, public health was actually in fourth year medical school. And, uh, 
uh, I was at uh, the Columbia uh, Medical School in New York, and uh, a, uh, at least a third of our class uh, went uh, abroad for a couple of months to do um, tropical medicine. So um, I did the last two months of medical school in Liberia, where it was a very different country at that point, uh, but uh, where I was uh, uh, stationed at a place called Zawzaw, which is uh, upcountry, several hours. My wife and I lived in a um, house there that uh, was occupied by a nurse uh, who uh, had been there for probably 30 years and had uh, made um, a huge impact bringing uh, uh, childbirth from the j jungle into the hospital. Uh, and uh, when we arrived at Zaza, we arrived exactly at the same time as she died suddenly from Lhasa fever, which was a uh, epidemic disease at the time. And uh, in the other half of the house where uh, we were living, uh, CDC had sent uh, investigators to uh, explore the uh, reasons for this epidemic and to uh, dissect animals and take samples. Um, that really fascinated me, even though I knew I wanted to be a cardiologist. I thought, hey, this is cool. So uh, when uh, I was given the opportunity to join the Army in Vietnam, I took even a better opportunity to uh, go through the court program into uh, uh, the CDC, where I had seen this fascinating investigation go on. My area was, believe it or not, parasitic diseases. and. Uh, they still are important, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I probably knew more when I got to Maine about amoebiasis than, or malaria than anybody else, so it was really kind of a sideline, but uh, I didn't, I just concentrated on cardiology. Um, but the um, CDC really opened my eyes to a number of things. First of all, I learned how to interpret and read uh, 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 journal articles and know what was um, believable and what perhaps was not. I learned uh, more about biostatistics than I had learned in medical school. I'm told I learned about biostatistics in medical school. I have no memory of that at all, but I certainly do at CDC. And then uh, that um, kept me um, aware of the larger picture. So um, I just have uh, been very much aware of that throughout my practice, too. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, even though I was a clinical cardiologist and also a, on the faculty, uh, I um, uh, helped establish the uh, cardiac rehabilitation program at the uh, University of Southern Maine. It was called Lifeline. And uh, then uh, in later years, um, helped establish Upbeat, which was at Mercy, and that ultimately transformed into Turning Point at uh, Maine, Medical Center, Maine Medical Center, which is, continues to be an extremely important, uh, uh, not only personal health, but public health facility. So uh, I, think, and I, I think that that's been a nice additional interest that I've uh, pursued throughout my career. You also took time not too long ago to go to Botswana, where you thought that you were going to be just doing standard um, internal medicine, primary care, but it turned out that you were able to marry your love of 
public health and um, your use of echocardiograms, so modern technology, and your knowledge of infectious diseases and really provide some interesting, um, really learn some interesting things and provide some help. Uh, the University of Pennsylvania, where I trained, uh, was uh, uh, inquiring among its um, uh, trainees, former trainees, anyone who could give time to their uh, BUP, there was the uh, Botswana University of Pennsylvania partnership uh, aimed at um, diagnosing, treating, and managing uh, HIV, AIDS, and TB in uh, Botswana. Uh, additionally, Baylor uh, has a similar program involving pedi pediatric patients, and Harvard uh, uh, provided all the laboratory services there. Uh, I had a year of um, freedom, so uh, I um, signed up to go for three months, and um, knowing uh, what I did about uh, Africa, I inquired, am I going to be involved just in teaching uh, medical residents and uh, house officers about uh, uh, how to how to be a doctor or how to treat HIV AIDS or is there any cardiology there which I could actually help with uh, I was told no there's not much cardiology so um, you'll just you'll you can teach them how to be a doctor so uh, knowing what I knew about uh, heart health in Africa I um, arranged with a, uh, one of the echo corporations to provide me uh, a loaner echocardiogram machine for three months. I spent uh, time before I went learning how to do a, a, uh, do a study. And then uh, after I went, the machine arrived on time. It was sent down from Nairobi to uh, Haberoni, which is the capital of Botswana where I was working. and. Um, Within a day or two, I was making these unbelievable discoveries of uh, pathology um, that guided uh, appropriate management. Um, anybody who appeared with uh, swelling in their legs and uh, trouble breathing was called CCF, chronic congestive failure, and everybody was treated the same. But with the help of diagnostic skills that I had in the echocardiogram, to document what uh, pathology was there, I uh, was able to define how to refine the management of these patients to treat exactly what they had. Some had stiff hearts that were not um, dilated and, uh, and uh, swollen and uh, unable to function properly. Others had uh, huge uh, fluid collections around the heart, something called a pericardial effusion. Some had severe valvular disease, and in fact, the uh, TB AIDS uh, population had frequent uh, presentations with large pericardial effusions, and the echo machine helped me do uh, guided pericardiosynthesis, which is a, a technique by which a, a needle is placed into the chamber, uh, into the space around the heart, and the fluid is drained. I had to make my own equipment. I used uh, a uh, intravenous catheter for the uh, uh, catheter to enter the space around the heart. I used IV tubing to drain the fluid, and I used a urine bag to collect the fluid in. Uh, but uh, it worked out beautifully. I, I 
did six of those while I was there. I found intracardiac tumors. I found two patients who had severe heart valve infections. The echo helped me see how serious these were and led to my sending them by plane to uh, Johannesburg for heart surgery. And uh, they came back six weeks later with, um, no, they came back three weeks later with um, uh, their uh, intravenous catheters ready to get antibiotics for the next six weeks, new heart valves, and feeling well again. So that echo machine saved lives, and it also made me able to be a much more effective uh, practitioner and teacher. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. Every now and again, I meet with a client who's not feeling very well. Day-to-day pressures weigh them down, and it's as if they have a cold or flu coming on that never seems to really hit. When I have these conversations, it's usually less about physical health, but more about how what's going on in their life needs to be looked at, treated, and healed. That's when I get into triage mode. I take the individual through a series of questions to get at the root cause of their illness. Nine times out of 10, the prescription to wellness is very simple. Understand that in order to feel better, you need to have a healthy relationship with your money and finances. The regular practice of addressing that stress will help you evolve with your money. Give us a call at Shepherd Financial, 847-4032. We are so happy to help. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by Dream Kitchen Studio by Matthew Brothers. Whether your style is contemporary, traditional, or eclectic, their team of talented designers are available to assist you in designing the kitchen or bath of your dreams. For more information, visit www.dreamkitchenstudio.com. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. If you are a healthcare provider and listener of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we invite you to the second lecture in our Apothecary by Design lecture series to be held at 75 Market Street here in Portland. Our second lecture is with Dr. Kristen McKelvin, a Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast guest and expert in the field of Lyme disease. She will be holding a discussion of Lyme disease and her naturopathic medical view on the disease on May 28th at 5 p.m. At her talk, Dr. McKelvin will review general tick-borne illness information, including diagnosis and testing and treatment options using both conventional and complementary therapies. 
this is a great opportunity for practitioners to gather reputable resources for use in their clinical practice. Visit apothecarybydesign.com for more information. I hope to see you there. You also saw something that we see often in the United States, which was hypertension, but you saw some really severe and untreated hypertension, which you showed me a picture of on your iPhone. I love this, that you were able to show me pictures of CAT scans and echo results on your iPhone. Why do you think that that is, that we, that they aren't able to treat something as basic as high blood pressure? Uh, several reasons. I think, uh, number one, uh, it's, uh, uh, Africans uh, and African Americans are uh, very susceptible to hypertension, and its uh, uh, prevalence is high. Uh, second, uh, the um, drug management of hypertension is uh, not quite as um, persistent in a place like Southern Africa as it is uh, in uh, among uh, a middle-class population in the United States. Um, I think uh, it's certainly frequent in uh, America that we've got uh, populations that are no better served than people in rural southern Africa and probably have the same incidence of uh, complications of untreated disease. Uh, the um, most common cause of stroke in uh, southern Africa is really intracranial hemorrhage. And that's usually a, a hypertensive complication. Uh, the the last reason is also the inconsistency of drugs. So uh, people are treated with whatever drugs around for that few months, and then when those drugs are used up, then other drugs replace them. And so trying to maintain a consistent antihypertensive schedule is not uh, not that easy. We actually have some similar problems even as you've said, here in the United States, where there is a popular segment of the population that doesn't have access to medication, not because it's not right there and right available at their drugstore, but because they don't have health insurance or they don't have prescription coverage or they don't have the funds to cover the copayment. How does that feel to you, that you can go from this country that's underdeveloped to a country that is theoretically very well-developed and we still have some of the same issues? Well, you know, I, I view uh, medical care uh, as a right. I view it as, I view this whole question of um, why does America have 50 million people without health insurance? A moral issue. It's not an economic issue. It's a moral issue. This is a, a horrible situation, and uh, I think there's no excuse for it. I think that... Um, uh, whatever we need to do in order to uh, provide people the health care they need uh, is essential. And um, whether it's uh, through uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act or whether it's through a universal payment system or some way to provide health care to anyone who needs it um, is, uh, I think, um, a responsibility of a society. So uh, I really feel it's too bad and we got to do something to fix it. It's interesting to hear you say that because not all doctors are um, behind the Affordable Care Act, for example. Not all doctors are behind 
uh, single-payer systems or some of the legislation necessary. But I would say that most doctors understand that there's something about the system that's not that's not quite right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I think that the Affordable Care Act is not perfect. It's uh, several thousand pages long, and that because uh, like every other um, legislation, a lot of different uh, interest groups need to be uh, assuaged in order to, to reach cons- reach consensus. Uh, and um, in the case of um, providing uh, health care. We uh, live in America by health insurance. It's not, uh, I, I, I think that it's uh, idealized uh, uh, if we could provide universal, universal health care by uh, single payer. But uh, on the other hand, that's just not the way America has worked. And uh, you can't change this place in an instant. So we have to work with what we have. Um, I think that the um, I'm puzzled by uh, the different messages I'm getting uh, about uh, the um, reasons to uh, be concerned about Medicaid expansion. I recognize that Medicaid is not a panacea in that it doesn't pay very well. It also uh, is something that was a um, technique for trying to expand the number of people with some form of insurance, uh, but uh, from the point of view of um, taking care of expanding uh, medical expenses, uh, it will in itself cause issues uh, of, uh, of disagreement and discord. So I, I think that um, there's, there's a lot of evolution that has to, uh, we have to undergo to uh, uh, bring medicine into the 21st century and beyond, uh, and to make it uh, available to as many people as possible. Uh, I think we have to uh, work together to uh, determine what's acceptable in this society and what's not. Uh, but um, in the end, uh, I think that uh, since healthcare is a right, we have to find a way to provide it. And it's not just through uh, uh, free care, the hospitals shouldn't take the burden of that, uh, and it's not uh, through um, having uh, different levels of, uh, of uh, quality of care. Uh, I think that that's um, not acceptable either. So there's a lot of work to be done. What I'm noticing about medicine is that there aren't as many people who are staying in long enough to have a historical perspective about it. I mean, I know I think about um, I think about you, I think about my father who's been practicing, I think he finished medical school in 1971. Um, and there are a few other doctors who are of that ilk, who have been around long enough. I mean, you've been practicing for 36 years. Yeah, I graduated in 72. So how do we, um, I guess, how do we capture that historical perspective? if? there aren't as many people who actually have been around long enough to have seen all of these shifts take place. You know, there are a lot of people who have been around long enough to participate in that. Um, For example, uh, uh, the chief of of medicine at uh, Penn, Arnold Relman, uh, when I was in training, uh, went on to other positions, including... um, 
a uh, being a professor at Harvard and also uh, uh, editing the New England Journal. Um, there are so many different things to do in medicine or around medicine, just as you're doing, that uh, uh, if you're uh, awake and uh, alert and uh, uh, at all um, conscious of uh, the evolution of uh, society as well as medicine, and spe specifically, um, uh, these um, these uh, awarenesses can happen. Uh, all I can say is that uh, medicine uh, is is in constant evolution. Uh, I have changed how I practice basically every five years for my entire career, uh, and uh, I've uh, concentrated primarily on a single laboratory uh, entity that is echocardiography and. Uh, always had that as ancillary to my practice as opposed to the thing I did. And uh, uh, as ECHO has evolved um, and the treatment of patients has evolved and the management of illnesses has evolved, it's been like riding a surfboard. Uh, and it's just been remarkable. Uh, I, I can't think of a better career for me, and uh, I, I think you're... Uh, uh, your uh, example and uh, your son who's about to go into medicine, uh, it's a, uh, I think that those who want to be doctors uh, really find that this is a wonderful profession no matter what we're paid. And you know, the, the fact that uh, a number of the smartest uh, graduates of um, Ivy League colleges were going off into money management instead of professions like medicine, you know what? They probably weren't going to be in medicine for long anyway, or good doctors. Uh, and I think that those who want to go into medicine are going to continue going into medicine, and they're going to continue having experiences just like I've had for the last decades. As you've mentioned, my, my son is thinking about going into medicine. Actually, he's applied to school. And I, I think I've, I've felt the same way that you're describing. I mean, a lot of, I've talked to a lot of doctors who would say, oh, I would never encourage my child to be a doctor. And I don't feel that way. I think the important thing is you, you just know somewhat what you're getting into right now and then realize that you're probably going to have to have some nimbleness of, of intellect and emotion and some perseverance in order to just, you know, keep riding the wave, as you've described. So it's a, it's a funny thing. If you go into medicine expecting one thing, then you'll probably, it's going to change by the time you graduate from medical school. And certainly in 35 years, 36 years, it's going to change, as long as you know. That's right. And I, I, all I can say is that, uh, you know, make sure that you get enough rest uh, and enjoy what you're doing. Uh, never stop learning. And uh, it uh, will continue to be a fulfilling career. Well, Dr. Shaw, it's been a pleasure to have you here today. And I know with your very busy schedule, um, we're really privileged that you took the time to come in and talk with us. Um, people who are interested in finding out more about your practice, um, they can go to the Martins Point Healthcare website. And um, I really uh, I appreciate your I appreciate all that you've done, and thank you for making me a better doctor. I got a new stethoscope recently, and I thought, you know, Dr. Shaw would really like the stethoscope. So you've made a big difference in my life, and I'm sure you've made the same big difference in the lives of medical students and residents really around the state. Well, thank you, Lisa. And I will say that this, that as long as I've been in practicing, I still needed to buy a new stethoscope, which I am about to 
receiving the mail this week. So it's uh, it's an ongoing process, and uh, I think it's been a thrilling career. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Peter Shaw, who is a cardiologist with Martins Point Healthcare, and um, keep doing the good work. Thank you. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When I consider today's show topic, I can't help but equate it with what happens in my business. I have to remind myself and my team to consider how what we do for our clients helps their businesses stay healthy. We are often there to diagnose problems and prescribe solutions that ease business aches and pains. And we have to do it with empathy, compassion, and heart. And when we see results and our clients are happy and successful, that gives us the deepest sense of satisfaction and gratitude. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. We all know that Maine is a small state, and especially when it comes to things like public health. I was privileged to work with Dr. Durval McCann on a public health project through Maine Health several years ago, and today we have her with us again. Dr. McCann is formerly the director of the cardiology division at St. Mary's Regional Medical Center and is on the medical staff and is a full-time cardiologist with Central Maine Medical Center in Lewiston. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Dr. McCann, you have a very interesting background. You spent some time out of the state before you chose to come to Maine. Tell me a little bit about what brought you here and and your background. My first real full-time exposure to Maine was when I came here uh, as a freshman at Bates College, and I fell in love with the state at that time. I left after graduation, but I had uh, planted a little seed. I talked my parents into moving to Portland. So they moved while I was still in college, and I left, went to medical school, joined the Navy, got married, and came back eventually to the state in 96, drawn both by the fact that my parents were still here and I wanted my kids to get to know them a little bit. I had a job, so that was uh, another pull. But basically, I'd always loved the state and uh, had always been looking for a way to get back here. And your family's originally from? Ireland. My parents are both Irish Uh, They met in medical school and emigrated initially to Newfoundland, Canada, and then to New England, eventually settling in Portland. What type of physicians are they? Both my parents are physiatrists, which uh, uh, is a specialty focused on rehabilitation medicine. And my dad was really one of the founding um, members of the uh, Wheelchair Sports Association and and was a real... um, 
pioneer, as was my mom, really. They both were very interested in uh, sports for the disabled and were part of that early movement and have remained very active in that um, element of sports ever since they started. So was the fact that your parents were physicians and in basically what is a, is a public health related field, did that influence your decision to go into cardiology? You know, I think I decided to be a doctor when I was about seven. Uh, and I really feel that you select your profession in part because you're selecting a peer group. You know, you, uh, you want to continue to grow intellectually, you want to be challenged, and you want to help people. And medicine was a really great way to do that. I um, was an internist for a number of years, but I found that my personality really matched better with cardiology. There was pretty immediate return on, uh, you know, a, an intervention with cardiology. Of course, when I became a cardiologist, cardiac catheterization was relatively new, um, and intervention was in its infancy. So uh, many technologies have advanced dramatically since I started. It's been really challenging to stay current and to stay um, as well-informed as you can be for your patients. But that's part of the, the beauty of it, I suppose. Do you ever speak with your uh, parents about the Irish medical school system or the Irish medical system and how it differs from the American system and where we are today? Yeah, we, we talked about it a lot, especially at the beginning of my American medical training. And actually, I went to Ireland to experience it with my husband. I was married at the time. And we did a rotation in Dublin. And it that was really an interesting experience. The focus was quite different. The Irish medical students relied far less on labs and technology. They, they really focused on physical diagnosis and the history, uh, the bedside examination. They had, I couldn't believe the stuff they memorized. It was really impressive, very, very bright. Um, also, the, the, when I was there, and this was you know, years ago, but the medical system was also very informed by religion, uh, you know, Catholic Ireland. Uh, so there were some social differences that um, we observed, my husband and I observed when we were there, regarding the communication with the patient, the communication with the family. Um, so it was, but it was a really good thing to experience and see up close and personally so that um, I understood much better how my parents had been trained and what their focus had been. Why did you choose to go into the Navy, and how did that shape your Money. eventual? <laughs> had none. Was married. Wanted to be independent. Seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, the uh, the uniforms were definitely a pull because they, they look great. No, seriously, um, we, you know, medical school at the time that I entered was uh, was during the Reagan administration. I went to Tufts. The tuition doubled uh, the year before I got there because federal subsidies were removed. So private medical schools around the country were suddenly seeing a very dramatic acceleration in cost. And my husband and I both had to find a way to get through this. And so we applied for a Navy scholarship. He got his the very first year. I got mine our second year. So I worked as an audiovisual tech during my whole first year of medical school to pay the bills. Uh, and in the, I have no regrets about this at all. It really turned out to be a fantastic experience, a great adventure, and um, 
believe it or not, it, it turns out that after Tufts Medical School, I applied to Bellevue Hospital and was accepted there for my residency at the height of the AIDS epidemic. And we had no idea what was in store for us during those three very difficult years. 50% of my patients had AIDS or AIDS-related illness, and 50% of the ones who had AIDS died while I was caring for them. So it was an inundation with one type of disease, and it was um, a very sad time uh, with very little that I could do. Uh, after I got done with my residency, that was the time that I started uh, my Navy payback. And I learned more internal medicine in the Navy because they specifically <laughs> excluded HIV positivity. So it was really helpful for me to have had those two experiences. One, very much based in a public health crisis with intensive care medicine emphasis and uh, very poor outcomes. So I became really, I really understood uh, the critical care elements of medical care. The Navy taught me a completely different side, the outpatient side, um, taking care of people who are essentially well, uh, but who have chronic medical problems as they age. So it was a really terrific a double teaching track, so to speak. You've had to be somewhat nimble as you've gone through because you've dealt with different demographic groups, you've um, been to different places, and now you find yourself in Lewiston and you have this interest in what's going on with um, the Franco-American, the French-Canadian, formerly French-Canadian population. Tell right. me about that. Well, there's no question. Um, my life has zigged and zagged. I have not been sort of a shooting star with a linear arc. That has not happened. But that's that's the great thing about, you know, America, I suppose, and, and about the opportunities that we can all take if we want to. But... Um, uh, so I've been exposed to a lot of different ethnic groups on the West Coast. I, you know, met a lot of Pacific Islanders in the Navy. I met a number of Cuban refugees um, in Boston. I met, you know, my the Irish Americans that, um, you know, uh, sort of certainly informed my understanding of that group. But definitely in Lewiston, we have a high population of Franco-Americans. I believe it's 29% of the city which is more than the state as a whole, and the state has a very high percentage of Franco-Americans. Um, and that is fine with me. I, I find the my patients of uh, Franco descent, particularly the ones who speak French as a first language, to be a really interesting uh, and wonderful group of people to take care of. I really enjoy them. Um, I can remember, and I speak a little bit of French, which is helpful uh, when you go to, for example, the emergency room sometimes, especially at the beginning when I first got there. I can recall the French-speaking nuns would be behind the curtains speaking French to the patients. It was almost, it was a lovely thing, sort of a spiritual thing. Uh, and um, that continues to inform the community, although Lewiston is rapidly changing and becoming far more cosmopolitan. And unfortunately, that French culture is not, um, you know, completely sustainable, although some wonderful leaders in the community are really trying to hang on to the history and the culture and the language. As you've been taking care of um, this particular population, you've noticed some things about them medically. 
that have been noticed before, but it just has it's caught your interest as a cardiologist. When I first arrived in, in Lewiston and started seeing really young people with heart attacks, it was a bit of a surprise. Often these folks, uh, young heart attack victims, would often have a whole lot of risk factors. They would have diabetes or they would smoke or they would have uh, high cholesterol or high blood pressure, you know, many different risk factors. But what I kept finding was very young people with very high cholesterols. And I started looking into uh, the subtype of, of patient who um, called uh, people with familial hypercholesterolemia. When you look at cholesterol, we divide it up into all sorts of subgroups. And there's this one genetic tendency that gives people very high LDL cholesterols. That's the bad, you know, what we used to call the bad cholesterol. Um, individuals with familial hypercholesterolemia uh, inherit this from their parents. It, if they get both genes, from one from the dad, one from the mom, they're called homozygotes. And those types uh, are very sick at a very early age. They typically have strokes or heart attacks, sometimes in their teens, and they often don't survive past the age of 30. But if you get just one copy of the gene from either one of your parents, you're called a heterozygote. And heterozygotes do have very high LDL cholesterols, but they're less likely to have that very early childhood form of heart disease, but they succumb to coronary artery problems, that's arteries of the heart, uh, in their 30s and 40s, much, much earlier than normal. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter-inspired landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. Some mornings I lie in bed exhausted thinking, wow, did I really sign up for all this? <laughs> I think we've all sort of been there where life just is a struggle sometimes and it's, it's long, it's hard, it's arduous. But I also think that that's how the human spirit is tested. And I think that sometimes when we're pushed up against a wall, that's when our best forms of creation come out. And in looking back at the most difficult projects I've been on, something came out of those projects that wouldn't have otherwise come out if it wasn't, if it was easy, I guess you might say. And I, and I think in reflecting back on, on life in general, we, 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 look at, we look at life and we say, you know, those were really difficult times, but I got through it. And I got to the other side, and I was able to create something that was really meaningful and it even has greater meaning and depth because of the struggle. So I guess we have to say in life we have to bless our struggles and bless the journey and make the most of everything we have and be grateful for it. I'm Ted Carter and if you'd like to contact me I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast understands the importance of the health of the body, mind, and spirit. Here to talk about the health of the body is Jim Graderix of Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. At Black Bear Medical, we lead with our hearts every day. From our daily fundraisers for the numerous charities in Maine to our everyday customer service, we do what we can do to help our customers feel better from the inside out. Injuries and ailments can be scary and have just as much of an emotional impact as a physical one. Let our experts 
look at the whole you and your situation and help suggest the products and services you need to get you back to being you. It's part of our culture and our promise to you. Visit blackbearmedical.com or stop by one of our retail stores in Portland or Bangor to see just how much heart we have. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine Seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. So you wanted to learn more about why this was happening. Exactly. And you, having taken a very kind of, um, I guess we'll call it holistic and family-based approach to the way that you practice medicine, you started digging into the history of this group. Right. Uh, It turns out that um, familial hypercholesterolemia is a gene that's seen ubiquitously. It's all over the world. Every, Every group, you know, every country, every ethnic group has some expression of this gene. The, but there are subgroups, you know, subpopulations uh, that seem to have a higher risk, and the Franco-American population is one such. This appears to be secondary to what we call the founder effect, and this is where the story got very interesting for me. It turns out that there were probably four to six founding families uh, from France who went to Quebec and became the early settlers of that uh, area, really founding Quebec. And because of uh, language, culture, religion, they intermarried. And it turns out historically, apparently, the French government gave them subsidies and additional monies if they reproduced and had lots of kids. Um, and so this, these founding families appear to have carried the gene with them and appear to be the source for this higher-than-usual um, expression of this gene in this population. So now go to the Industrial Revolution uh, with mills being built around the New England area and a railroad that went directly from Quebec to Portland. And the Lewis, the people of Lewiston built a railroad spur that got, so people could get on the train in Quebec and get on and make a change and get off in Lewiston. And thousands of Franco-Americans ended up coming to Lewiston to work in the mills where they were able to make a much better living there than as subsistence farmers in Quebec. But the same culture, the same language, the same shared heritage tended to create a situation where people continued to intermarry and they had lots and lots of kids. So the end result of this is the gene became sort of concentrated and amplified in this particular population. So if you claim Franco-American descent, you are more likely than the average person to carry the gene for familial hypercholesterolemia. So what does this mean for you as a cardiologist? You obviously, cholesterol is still confusing us. I mean, I'm a primary care doctor and it, it's it, we're uncertain as to how we're supposed to deal with this, but we know that there is a problem with cholesterol and the heart. So how does this how does this change the way that you work within your practice? You're absolutely right. Cholesterol is confusing. It it 
believe it or not, it's still confusing to cardiologists, too. We've just received some new guidelines. Last November, the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, published some new guidelines that have been quite controversial, actually. But one thing that has um, continued to to be the mantra is that LDL cholesterols that are really high need to be very aggressively treated. Unfortunately, patients with familial hypercholesterolemia have LDL cholesterols. We like to see them under 100. Their LDL cholesterols are typically 190 or greater, so they're really very, very high. And lifestyle modification remains the mainstay of therapy for cholesterol treatment, and that means smoking cessation, exercise, achievement of your ideal body weight, and a healthy diet, um, which is not high in trans fats or uh, hopefully is very balanced with lots of, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains. I often will talk about the Mediterranean diet to my patients, which really has some good evidence behind it as a, a very healthy way to eat. But uh, with familial hypercholesterolemia, even aggressive lifestyle modification typically isn't enough. And so we have to treat these people with some pharmacologic agent. And the one that seems to be coming after all these years and lots of other tries with lots of different things, statin therapy appears to be the safest and most effective therapy for them. And in fact, it can um, it can really do wonders for these patients and markedly reduce their risk of heart disease. So, um, but we frequently, as physicians, work in sort of silos, and we have not got strong links to community programs for dietary modification, smoking cessation, exercise. Those are sort of all different uh, packets of talent that are scattered around our communities, and we're very busy. We're all under a lot of pressure to just get through the patients of the day. So with the support of Central Maine Medical Center and St. Mary's, I've been working with both hospitals in Lewiston because we've recognized that this is a community problem. We are working now on a pilot project to, to link all of those things, to make sure that when we identify high-risk patients, we do a couple of things. We sit down and talk with them, explain the genetics, and try to screen their first-degree relatives. That's called cascade screening. It's very cost-effective, and we're very likely to identify other individuals who are at high risk using that approach. Just mother, father, brothers, sisters, and kids. If we screen them, we're likely to find additional family members with high cholesterol. And then we really work on the lifestyle stuff, give them the support that they need to quit smoking if they smoke. Um, diet is uh, focused on a healthy diet. We've gotten some support from St. Mary's Nutrition Center. We think we're going to be using them as part of our um, process to educate. And uh, we've got all sorts of exercise groups in the area that, that would like to be part of this, and we're going to try to create links for our patients. But we're going to try to maintain the, the primary care provider as the central link uh, and um, the central connection for that patient. We are going to be in the background trying to add quality to what the primary care provider is going to provide. But this program today is very helpful because... I want to make sure that we get the word out to the public, not just to the medical community, but to the public that this is a, a, a unique, not isolated to Franco-Americans, but particularly important to Franco-Americans in the state of Maine. Um, and the real reason that I got started on all this is we've got this brand new 
electronic medical record, and you can do all sorts of fun things with it, like ask it questions. So I asked the question, how many patients do we have in our system? And the answer is 80,000. And how many of them have ever had an LDL cholesterol of greater than 190? And that's a sort of a standard starting point to identify individuals with familial hypercholesterolemia. And with a population of 80,000, you would anticipate about 160 patients. That's 0.02%. That is, one in 500 people are typically expected to have this gene. We got 4,000 patients. That my jaw dropped when I saw that number, and that was really the impetus behind all of the activity that we've been engaging in over the last several months. Can people contact you through the Central Maine Medical Center website or switchboard? They or? absolutely can, uh, and I, I would encourage them to um, keep an eye out because we are going to try to spread the word both publicly. They don't have to come to me personally. They can continue to work with their primary care providers, their primary care providers. We'll be probably publishing our results. I intend to try to perhaps get together a brochure to help patients educate themselves about what they need to do. I would love to get some money to distribute that. If so, anybody out there who'd like to give me some money to, you know, um, get this really jump-started, that'd be great, thanks in advance. But, uh, it, you know, we, we're starting small, we're going to do a pilot, we're going to build, and hopefully we'll grow it. Well, thank you for the work that you continue to do for patients in the Lewiston area and the state of Maine, and, um, and thank you for really making an effort to um, embrace medicine where, where it is right now, because it is an exciting time to be in medicine, and um, there are a lot of things we can offer patients now that we weren't able to offer them 10, 15 years ago before the age of electronic medical records. So we've been speaking with Dr. Dervila McCann. He was a cardiologist with Central Maine Medical Center in Lewiston. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa. I really appreciate you giving me this time. You've been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 140, Hearts in Maine. Our guests have included Dr. Peter Shaw and Dr. Dervila McCann. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Hearts in Maine show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Dream Kitchen Studios, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine, at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, 
and Dr. Lisa Belial. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our online producer is Kelly Clinton. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is available for download free on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Thank you.